Well, we had technical difficulties, so we're, we're going to begin the sermon again. Um, we've been so blessed all week that the technical kept trying to crash and didn't, and so finally on Easter morning it did. Uh, it sort of fits this week, doesn't it? It's just been one of those weeks where, where with the COVID virus and with their, all the restrictions, we've all experienced frustrations. But I'd like to begin again. Uh, the COVID virus has won, hadn't it, in so many ways. Uh, historically, when, when flu epidemics came through in my lifetime, we, we suffered through them, but we knew that very few were going to pay the ultimate price. We, we felt like if we just sat still and go on, we'll take a flu shot and it'll be eventually okay. But this virus has won. It, it has changed our economy. It has changed our lifestyle. It has overrun some hospitals and parts of the world. It has, has brought the earth in many ways to its knees. And there's an irony in that because throughout human history, we humans have seemed to fulfill Satan's prophecy in the Garden of Eden that, that we would seek to be like gods, that, that we would struggle Bite at the bit, if you will, of, of having to submit to a sovereign God. So throughout human history, we, we have sought to get out from under his rules and to establish our own ability to make decisions and be in control. We have, we have tried to live our lives apart from him and, and show just how powerful we are without him. And then a silly little virus, this thing that looks like something you would throw up against Velcro and it would stick. This, this silly little round thing that we can't even see has absolutely paralyzed us. And all the things that we place so much faith in are suddenly slipping away. And it's as though we're being reminded of just how much we aren't God and just how little power we have. In many ways, uh, since the Garden of Eden, since the first man and woman, there, uh, humanity has struggled with twin sins. So one is the desire to be God ourselves, the desire to displace God's role in the universe by making the decisions for our lives ourselves. Uh, that is to shake our fists at God and say, you won't tell me, I will tell you. You will serve me, I won't serve you. And that pride has often placed us in our positions where we've resisted God's role in our lives. The other one is that sin of idolatry in which, which because we fail as our own gods, we run into the reality that we're really not adequate. We start substituting other things for God. We place our hope in, in our wealth or our looks or our government or our justice or our righteousness. We, we seek to find other things that, that we can worship and serve instead of God. And those, those twin sins, if you will, of, of declaring ourselves God and, and substituting other things for God have, have in many ways been brought to their knees today with the COVID because we can't control anything. And many of the things that we as a society had placed so much hope in have been taken away from us. 
And, and, and now we find ourselves sitting in our homes, many of us wondering if we can pay for them, with a sense of helplessness. A, a simple little virus has reminded us who we're not. That's true throughout human history. It is, it is not new to our society that humanity has sought to replace God. It, it is not unique to today that we have worshipped other things besides God. And we've done it differently throughout history, but there have always been these efforts from the Tower of Babel uh, onwards, these, these times when we shook our fists and said, we have no need of you and we will decide how to live our lives. In the Old Testament, God responded to that by, by sending prophets. And, and there is this parade of prophets through the Old Testament who would come to God's people and, and declare His love and His mercy and His justice, but also His judgment for them if they continued to disregard Him and neglect Him and, and substitute idols for Him. And, and the people would respond for a time when disaster would come. But over time, they would slide back into those sins of idolatry and pride. The New Testament has a prophet like that. In many ways, the last Old Testament prophet is introduced in the Gospels. He is John, the one we call the Baptist, who, whose life is inseparable from Jesus. His birth narrative is, is, is tied tightly with Jesus because their mothers were related and, and the annunciations that came to both of them, their fathers by virtue of angels pronouncing their birth uh, show a similarity. Uh, both of them from before birth were given responsibilities to make a difference in the people of God. Both of them were prophesied of in the Old Testament. In other words, there are amazing parallels between that last Old Testament prophet and Jesus whose resurrection we celebrate today. In Matthew chapter 3, it describes the ministry that God gave to John the Baptist. It says, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And this is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Quoting from Isaiah 40, one of the great Old Testament passages about God's intervention in our lives. It, it shows that John had a dual purpose. One, to introduce the coming Messiah, that king who would restore the peace and, and righteousness that God had intended from all of creation. But also his responsibility to call the people to change their minds, to turn away from worshiping themselves and serving themselves and their idolatry that was bringing them into disaster and instead calling them to worship the true God. And that's exactly the ministry that John has given and is described in Matthew chapter 3. It goes on to say, John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and wild honey. And people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John is a different cat. He lives in isolation. He dresses funny. He eats strangely. And yet, 
The Gospels tell us that he, he resonated with the brokenness of the people so that they responded with a repentance. Verse 7, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do, and do, you, do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, out of the stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already on the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winning fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn, and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Uh, John comes and proclaims to the religious community of the first century that God has seen through their pretend worship. That even though there is a veil of spirituality in their lives, God has seen through their hearts and that their true actions are inconsistent with the heart of God. And therefore, God will bring judgment because of their disobedience and the harm that they're doing to others. If, if they will not repent, if they will not change, turn away to God's way rather than their way, if they will not submit to God's plan of salvation, in other words, they will incur a judgment. In Matthew chapter 11, the story of John the Baptist reappears. Uh, verse 1, it says, after Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. And when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Uh, in an odd sort of way, that passage really encourages me. Here you have John, this amazing, amazing servant of God, and yet in spite of the fact that he had announced that Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, in spite of his testimony to Christ, when he finds himself imprisoned, he wonders and he doubts and he fears. So he sees some of his, sends some of his disciples for reassurance from Jesus. And Jesus says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk and those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A, a reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, not so much. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written in Malachi chapter 3, I will send my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. What an endorsement. 
whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who has come. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus uh, John has spent his life endorsing the ministry of Jesus. Now Jesus, toward the end of John's life, endorses him as the prophet sent in that, that significant role of introducing the Messiah. Then in chapter 14 of, John, of Matthew, uh, there is a significant development. Verse 1, at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus and he said to his attendants, this must be John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Uh, by the way, that first introduction to the story in chapter four, uh, 14 is a reminder of, of how significant Jesus' role was, that even King Herod believed that he must be miraculous, a, a resurrected John to have accomplished significant things. But now he tells the story of what happened to John the Baptist. Verse 3, now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Uh, Herod would be a really great bad joke. Uh, Herod was a man who uh, married his brother's wife. Uh, Herodias, and, and, and couldn't understand why people weren't okay with that. So Herod wanted to kill John because John declared that what he had done was wrong, but Herod was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. And on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guest and pleads Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And they brought his head to Herod. And John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Uh, this incredible prophet, this harmless man of God who had spent his life preaching but dared to criticize the sin of a man in power for the sin in his family. As a result, that family declares John not worthy of life and this great prophet's life is taken. And the disciples immediately run to Jesus, to tell him what has happened to his cousin, because you know they must have been distressed. And in many ways, that is the way the world will respond to those who call them to righteousness. Now, certainly, we have a role in the body of Christ to proclaim the righteousness of God, and we should do it with humility, and we should do it with uh, love, but uh, we do have a responsibility to speak the truth because scripturally God's will is always for people's best and when the world deserts God's will, 
they bring harm not only in those around them, but about themselves as well. And so John, this, this man whose role was to call Israel to higher moral principles, uh, to obedience to God's way, to, to live life the way God intended, gives us life for it. And that feels sort of hopeless at that point and, and discouraging because it, it seems as though the bad guys are winning. And, and you can imagine then how John's disciples, who had gone through the heartbreak of seeing their teacher be unjustly killed, would respond when then Jesus is taken up by the Roman soldiers and taken through a kangaroo court and tried and condemned to death themselves. And so that when Jesus is placed on the cross and gives up his life, the believing community must have, have felt that we had finally lost what is good, that there, there was no hope in the midst of this disease of sinfulness that plagues human society. But you know the story in Matthew, beginning at the end of verse 20, uh, chapter 27, Jesus is, is buried, in, and, and Pilate is fearful that, I believe, fearful that he would be resurrected. He says, fearful that Jesus' friends might steal his body. He posts guards to ensure that Jesus would not be resurrected. Uh, ironically, they end up being witnesses of the resurrection. They go against what Herod hoped. In chapter 28, after the Sabbath at dawn, the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow, and the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. And the angel said to the women, don't be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified, and he is not here. He is risen, just as he said. And come and see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead and is going on ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. So now I have told you. And the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. And suddenly Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came to him and clasped his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. Go to Galilee, and there they will see me. There's a lesson here. John was sent by God. Like all of the other prophets, he had a remarkable role of speaking to people on behalf of God, the message of God, which is to turn away from doing life your way and turn instead to living life as God has prescribed. Uh, understand that God loves you. His desire for you is peace and joy and fulfillment and wholeness and righteousness. And when you neglect his way, uh, you, you take yourself and those around you in a direction that will ultimately ends in heartache and ruin. And that proclamation 
of God's message and that proclamation of morality is vitally important to, to remind us of our need. But Matthew makes it clear that John doesn't meet the need. Statements about morality, calling the world around us to repent, reminding people of how wrong we are when we disobey God's plan, all of those things have value in turning us back to consider what God has to offer. But they're never the answer. The answer comes when the Son of God comes and dies for our sins and is resurrected. Because, see, just like the COVID virus, uh, the reason we fear the disarray around us is because the ultimate enemy of it is death. The one thing that we can never defeat and never will in this life is the reality that we will die, as promised, all the way back to the first man and first woman. That our disobedience of God has, has separated us from him, and because we are separated from him, we, we live our lives uh, with the brokenness. The lack of fulfillment that comes from walking hand in hand with the God who made us. And, and the prophets come to remind us to turn back to God's way, but they never provide the solution. The solution is always pointed to, and that is the Son of God who will not only proclaim the truth of God, but will take on, take on the punishment, the burden of all of our disobedience so that, so that justice of God is satisfied and we go from being enemies of God to friends of God because we placed our hope and trusted in him, trust in him and then he defeats death. That one enemy that we can never defeat. No matter how much we beat our chest and proclaim our greatness, no matter how uh, significant we think we are, the, the one thing that we always run into is our inability to defeat death. And Jesus came, as promised by John and all the Old Testament prophets, and, and he does what no man has ever been able to do. He defeats death. More discussion of morality will not solve the human problem. Of course, part of the problem is that when we start pointing fingers at each other and proclaiming our need for morality, we all have different pet sins and different pet righteousness. Every group has different things that we think are particularly morally reprehensible. The one way that we can come together is in submission to the Creator's system of right and wrong, His morality, as demonstrated in His Scriptures. But, but we are powerless to defeat it. And that's why Easter is so significant because not only, uh, there were many who, who spoke God's morality prior to this, but Jesus' victory over death, his resurrection defeated the very enemy that we could never defeat and demonstrated his complete victory over that which had held us hostage throughout history. So when John's disciples found his body. They took it and buried it and went to Jesus. But when the disciples went to find John's body, he was gone. 
Alexander the McLaren, the great old preacher, points out that those two verses summarize the very core of why Jesus is different. Because when he died, his body disappeared. He defeated death. The Apostle Paul speaks to this at the end of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, that great resurrection passage in which he says how significant the resurrection is to us. And he says, when the perishable, verse 54, when the perishable have been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will be true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? But thanks be to God, He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Easter is a reminder that through Christ, even death should not cause us to be afraid. Because that ultimate enemy that came about because of our disobedience to God has been defeated when Jesus was resurrected and he reigns to this day and gives life to all who believe him. Morality is good and it is important, but the reality is we, are, we, we aren't good enough to live according to our own moral standards. No one around us is. And that's why the solution was not more morality. It was victory over death. So that today we... we Worship Christ because he wins. Death is defeated. And, and we can now have the life we yearn for if we place our trust in him. If, if you have never accepted Christ, if you have never placed your hope in his death and resurrection, today would be a great day. Okay. Ask yourself, are you good enough to be God of your own life? Or, or have the things that you've uh, pushed God out of your life with, those idols, those other things, have, have they been adequate? Or have you been reminded through these circumstances just how inadequate we are apart from God's work? Today would be a great day to place your hope in Christ because he wins. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that in spite of the brokenness around us and the brokenness in this world, that through your Son we can have life. Father, we thank you that in, in spite of our own tendency to push you out of the way and, and to make ourselves gods or to worship other things around us, that you alone are enough. And you make yourself available to all. Father, on this Easter Sunday, uh, when so much has been stripped away from us by this pandemic, remind us of the one who is ultimately in control and ultimately has our good in mind. Father, today I pray. I pray today that we would place our hope fresh in you. Because there's no virus, there's no calamity. There's nothing over which you cannot exercise control. Thank you, Lord, that you are God. And through Jesus, death is dead. In his name, amen.